BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Fred Flintstone got an email from Donald Trump overnight because Fred Flintstone donated five bucks to Trump's campaign when he you know, was in, in the primary back in the day. And so Fred keeps getting emails. So, Fred, Democrats have illegitimately disinvited me from making my scheduled and very important State of the Union address. Very is in all caps. The State of the Union is not, this is in all, the entire sentence is in all caps, in bold. The State of the Union is not for liberal obstructionists, it's for the American people. Nancy Pelosi asked me to reschedule the State of the Union address given the security concerns, in quotes, regarding the government shutdown. What about the real, all caps, security concerns at our southern border? What about the real, all caps, security concerns of American citizens and their loved ones? The only reason Democrats and Nancy Pelosi want to reschedule, in quotes, my State of the Union address is because they know I will say what I've always said about our southern border, the truth. Well, it turns out that he's actually lying through his teeth and everybody in the administration knew about it. Kristen Nielsen has been lying through her teeth. Senator Jeff Merkley this morning released a absolute bombshell. It was leaked to him by somebody inside the Department of Homeland Security, the DHS. And in this bombshell report, which came from a little over a year ago, is from December of 2017, uh, this is a quote from Jeff Merkley, Senator Merkley, about this. This document shows Trump administration staffers plotting to create a humanitarian crisis at the border. This memo shows that the administration was treating children as political pawns, not vulnerable human beings. That's reprehensible. We must end this Trump war on migrant children. I would say refugee children. Press release says this document proves that the administration was, in fact, intentionally and deliberately planning all along to separate families and create a crisis in the southern U.S. border. But you have DHS Secretary Kristen Nielsen saying before Congress, we do not have a policy of separating families at the border, period. That's June 17, 2018. Under oath, December 20th, 2018. Now, this is six months and 12 months after they put this policy into place. She's lying through her teeth. She says, I am not a liar. We never had a policy for family separation. Here's the actual quote from the memo. Item two, separate family units. And, you know, it's basically announced the DHS is considering separating family units, place the adults in detention, in adult detention, place the minors under the age of 18 in the custody of HHS, and begin separating family units. Done. Number two, false claim. 
that Obama did it. No, uh, under the Obama administration, the only time children were separated from their parents is if they determined that A, the parents actually represented a threat to the children, or B, the person representing themselves as a parent wasn't actually a parent. It was actually somebody who, you know, had stolen a kid or something. I mean, it was, it was rare, but they found them. So, another lie, which you will hear repeated on Right Wing Hate Radio and on Fox News regularly. Another lie from Trump that family separation was not implemented as a deterrent. Again, Nielsen, line, line, she says, I find that offensive, that, that suggestion. Well, here's the quote from the memo itself. The increase in prosecutions would be reported by the media and it would have substantial deterrent effect. Another lie from the Trump administration, violent criminals are forcing the administration to expand detention facilities. In fact, the memo says any and all efforts should be made to criminally prosecute those who smuggle their kids into the United States. So the criminals that they're expanding the detention facilities for are people who tried to bring their children into the United States. The, the administration knew under their family separation policy that you'd have an increased need for detention space. In fact, this is from the memo. I would suggest referring sponsors for criminal prosecution. This would result in a deterrent impact on the sponsors as well. So, number one, Trump's fundraising email. And by the way, this is a fundraising email, not anything else. Trump's fundraising email basically lies. I mean, not basically, just right up front lies. And then he says, Democrats panicked when I became president. Democrats panicked when I gave my presidential address last week. And now they're panicking at the thought of me speaking to you and your family in two short weeks. The reason for all this liberal hysteria is because they're finally being exposed for hiding the truth for decades, Fred. Right. And then we discover, speaking of lies, that Nancy Pelosi was actually going to be flying commercial when Trump said, no, you can't have a government plane along with the congressional delegation, because it's pretty important to find out what's going on in Afghanistan, meet with the troops, meet with the people on the, on, the, on the ground. She wanted to interview the people from the government of Afghanistan. They were going to stop in Brussels. Uh, they had to do that for pilot uh, sleep, but they also, had to, they also wanted to stop and talk to the leaders of NATO and say, no, our crazy president is not speaking for us when he says repeatedly, let's pull out of NATO. NATO, of course, was created solely for the purpose of holding back the old Soviet Union. So he's lying about that. And then the story came out that Michael Cohen was a witness to efforts by Donald Trump to tell basically Michael Cohen to lie before Congress. And not only Cohen, this was uh, apparently, you know, and, and by the way, this is not from Cohen's testimony. I mean, Giuliani and, and Trump's spokesperson were both on Fox this morning, uh, Giuliani yesterday, saying, oh, Cohen's just lying. And Trump tweeted that this morning. He's lying again. He's trying to reduce his sentence. Check out his, his father-in-law, right? So here's, you know, mafia boss Trump. And it's not the Italian mafia. It's the oligarch mafia from the former Soviet Union. That's who, who Trump is a part of. That's, the, that's the, the, the mafia that he's a part of. The oligarch mafia Don, who is now sitting in the White House saying, hey, nice family there. Be ashamed if anything happened to your father-in-law, Michael. Really? Well, it turns out it wasn't Cohen's testimony at all. It was documents and recordings that are in the possession of Robert Mueller saying that Donald Trump ordered these people to lie before Congress, including Cohen and his son and his daughter. And speaking of his daughter, Ivanka Trump issues carefully worded denial of BuzzFeed report on Trump Tower Moscow. Now, listen to this carefully. 
It's like, you know, the guy driving the, the, the getaway car in a bank robbery, his excuse is always, well, I was only minimally involved. I wasn't there for the robbery. I was just outside, you know, in the car. Here's the quote. Ms. Trump did not know about this proposal until after a non-binding letter of intent had been signed. Never talked to anyone outside the organization about the proposal. Never visited the projected project site, in other words, Moscow, and was only minimally involved. Yeah, just like that, uh, just like that guy driving the getaway car. I was only minimally involved. This is nuts. I mean, this is just plain old flat out nuts. And now Nancy Pelosi, because Trump leaked that they were going to Afghanistan. I mean, it's something you just never do, right? If Barack Obama, as president, had leaked a trip to Afghanistan by a bunch of Republicans, he would have been impeached the next day. I mean, this is, this is blowing up national security. That, in, in my opinion, that in and of itself is a crime against our republic. Impeachment has always been the right remedy. Now it may become politically plausible. This is Kerry Elveld. Donald Trump has already committed an impeachable offense. Kerry Elveld is writing for the Daily Kos, according to federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. And now this isn't, this is not the uh, Mueller investigation. This is not Robert Mueller. Donald Trump has already committed an impeachable offense. This is according to federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York in a December sentencing filing against uh, Michael Cohen, they said that Cohen made two hush money payments to women, you know, basically Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels, to suppress the stories and, quote, thereby preventing them from influencing the 2016 election. That's a crime. It's not only a crime, it's also how Trump essentially lied his way into the White House. Which means that the election itself didn't have integrity. The election itself was illegitimate. And now we get this report that Michael Cohen was directed by Donald Trump to lie to Congress. And that it's not just Cohen's testimony, that there's documentary evidence of this. And multiple sources of documentary evidence that are in the possession of Mueller. If this is, pr if this is true, that there's two impeachable offenses that we know about. Two that we could use to go after Donald Trump, to impeach Donald Trump. It seems to me like maybe a good idea to be talking about this and thinking about it. This is uh, Lindsey Graham explained the overlapping parallels. He says, Nixon cheated. He cheated the electoral system by concealing efforts of a political break-in and his people thought the other side deserved to be cheated. They thought his enemies deserved to be mistreated. Ladies and gentlemen, they were wrong. Today, Republicans with a small handful of Democrats will vote to impeach President Clinton. Oh, this is Lindsey Graham back in the 90s when he thought that if a president lies, he should be impeached. That Lindsey Graham. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. Christopher in uh, Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Christopher, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. This has been quite a, a weekend with all this going on with the bombshells about Trump and Russia and stuff. We keep hearing the FBI open an investigation on Trump. I assume that that would have to come from the top, like from the director. It yes, who at the time was James Comey. That investigation has been picked up by Mueller now. Comey yeah. opened it. Oh, wow. Yeah, apparently okay, signed off on I haven't this heard thing. it any place on the media. I'm just wondering 
that had to be on the, from the top. Yeah, I you know I think so, and and you know Comey's been rather circumspect on the whole thing, but it sure looks to me like he he started this thing, and then when Rod Rosenstein came in and and Comey was fired, and so Rosenstein appointed Robert Mueller, and Robert Mueller came in and said, okay, my mandate is to investigate Trump in Russia, and he picked up this ongoing FBI investigation. At least that's my reading of it. Christopher, thanks for the call. And on the line with us is uh, Brian Welch. He is both a clinical psychologist and an attorney. That's an interesting combination. He's the author of the new book, State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. His website, Bryant Welch, B-R-Y-A-N-T-W-E-L-C-H.com. And uh, Bryant, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. So what is your core assertion here in this book? Well, the question I'm trying to answer is why is the human mind so vulnerable to the kind of manipulations that that led to Hitler and you know differences have to be acknowledged but it's chilling in its the way it's so uncanny in its connection to what a number of us are experiencing in the present American political scene state of confusion focuses on the American mind and uh, less on the mind of Donald Trump and more on the mind of the people who are supporting him, and really, in fairness, those of us who have been opposing him, because we're not doing a very good job of it. So the thesis is, to understand the current predicament in America, we have to understand the American mind in order to understand how it's vulnerable and how, in fact, we're being manipulated. And there is a hopeful note in the book, as dire as things are now, with neuroscience and things we're learning about the mind, if we will pay attention to it, we can improve our mental functioning and be less vulnerable to demagogues, whoever we think they are and however they operate. On the tail end of uh, 2008, back when George W. Bush was president, your book first came out, the first edition of it, and you were arguing that, if I have this correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, that basically all the lies that we have been told to get us into the war in Iraq, the lies about our ongoing torture programs, other things like that, that, that we had been so gaslighted that we had lost our ability to tell the difference between right and wrong, or for that matter, truth and fiction. A, do I have that right? And B, are things worse now, or is this just a continuation? Is the Trump presidency the logical consequence of, of you know, basically 40 years of Americans being lied to ever since Reagan started telling us that if you just cut taxes on rich people, everybody would get a pay raise? Yes, you've got it just right. And as I said in the first edition of the book, the problem was not going to end just because George Bush left office. And the reason I wrote the second edition that we're talking about now, A State of Confusion, is that the mind has deteriorated, the situation has gotten a lot worse. If you want a little quick measure of that, conjure up an image of George W. Bush, and now conjure up an image of Donald Trump. And I think most of us have a visceral reaction to the difference between the two. But I talk about the way the mind works and why it was vulnerable to the kind of things that have started happening in the political world. And it's fascinating when you compare the kind of manipulations or gaslighting that took place with the Bush administration, for example, by Karl Rove or what have you. If you now look at the kind of statements in the first edition of the book, I marveled at the intricacy and complexity of the deceptive web that the far right was using in their mass media. 
Today, what's striking is how amazingly simple it is. If you look at Kellyanne Conway and what she says, she doesn't have to come up with elaborate deceptions. She simply makes a few assertions, and the American mind has grown so weak that it's not able to discriminate, to challenge, and to think critically. And I document why that's happened in the book, In State of Confusion. Don't you think a lot of people just know that she's lying through her teeth, that Sarah Sanders is lying through her teeth? I mean, the press comes out and says, you know, Sarah Sanders told another lie today. I mean, it seems more like we're just going, yeah, I guess we're powerless to do anything about it. Well, I think that's where I'm saying the, the liberal or progressive mind is weak. But the thing that we forget in all that is that close to a majority of Americans don't think that she's lying, and they don't challenge it. Mm. And if you watch CNN, you're going to have one perspective on what's happened. But I tell my progressive friends, if you're not watching Fox News, you don't understand the reality that's being fed to the other half of the American minds. Yeah, that's true. And that's where the damage is being done. Now, don't get me wrong. With the onset of Fox News, a lot of media have moved in the direction of devious communications and the styles that I talk about in some detail in State of Confusion. But the fact of the matter is this country is being fed very, very different realities. So you sit there and you watch CNN or MSNBC, you've got one reality. You've got to switch the dial and watch them both simultaneously, and it's stunning how different the world is being portrayed with the two different media capitals. How bifurcated are we? To what extent do people who watch Fox News literally never go outside the conservative media bubble? They just listen to Limbaugh on the radio and read Daily Caller online. And to what extent do people who read Daily Kos or Democratic Underground or Alternate or something like that not ever watch Fox News and just stay to free speech TV we, or MSNBC? We, we are very bifurcated. That's the point that I'm making about if you're not looking at the other person's information and what forms their sense of reality in the world, then we don't know what's going on and we can't understand the problem. I'm trying to address that problem of our divisions in state of confusion by looking at the mind. The most important thing the mind does for us is create a sense of reality, what we think reality is. Now, we think it's just something out there externally to be discerned and to be noted, but it's not. It's a mental function by which we select certain aspects of reality, and we integrate them and we weave them into our own reality sense. When we have a hard time doing that, we don't do so well, and we don't like to be threatened by realizing there are other perspectives that other people have. So now, this is a country that's always had differences. But we've been able to tolerate listening to other people's perspective without being so threatened that we have to start hating these people and seeing them as evil. And that's the big problem that's confronting America. We can tolerate differences, but our mind's capacity to tolerate is breaking down because it's been under so much stress and it's outstripping the capacity of the mind to assimilate new information to process the kind of traumatic experiences that are affecting our lives, and to withstand the kind of political manipulation and gaslighting that's permeating the airwaves on our public discourse. To what extent are you suggesting that we need to start paying attention to them? It seems to me like, you know, we need to figure out a way to get them to start paying attention to us, to the worldview that is shared by the majority of Americans, and frankly, the vast majority of people around the world in developed countries. 
my primary message is that we need to start paying attention to our minds, to the way the mind works, ours and theirs. And when we begin to understand these mechanisms that I talk about in the book, what I call the battleground state. No, but this, this all sounds very didactic, uh, you know, Bryant. What specifically can I do to get the guy who lives next door to me, well, I don't, you know, there isn't one right now, but, uh, you know, my next door neighbor who watches Fox News all day long to watch something else? You can start with listening to him right. and not trying to insist with logic or reason that he should give up his views. But if you look at what I've said in State of Confusion, Tom, I've got a much more elaborate set of things that have to happen. They have to happen at the national level in the communication style of our leaders, and they have to also take place at the individual level in our communication with everyone paying more attention to how the mind works. So we're less vulnerable to the kinds of manipulative tactics that are taking place so we can employ mental hygiene on ourselves and on our families and in our community. Okay. And there are things we can do there if you'll take the time to do it. Bryant Welch is the author. The book is State of Confusion, Political Manipulation, and the Assault on the American Mind. Bryant, thanks for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. Good, good talking with you. Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism, too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes, and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, to use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com, Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM. Riduzone.com. Charles in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind? Tom, thank you for taking my call, sir. Sure. Uh, go back to time of the summer of 2016 uh, before the last presidential election, and my other half and I were in a beautiful uh, Oregon coast town that celebrates the harvesting of the cranberries. And uh, to this day, I still see the first float that came down the street a small main street in downtown, about, you know, four or 5,000 people might have been there at the most. And the first float is a uh, float where there's an Uncle Sam pounding a gavel. Uh, there's a Hillary Clinton behind bars, and there's an endless tape loop that says, lock her up. But yes, sir. And it, and the town was abandoned five hours south of Portland. So okay. yeah. anyway, uh, I was appalled, didn't quite know what to say, wanted to say something. I wrote letters to the editor. Yeah. My point is that... That still sticks in my mind greatly as we fast forward to now when there's a couple words apparently evident. One is accountability. The other one is hypocrisy. You know, I'm, I'm a 63-year-old man who's worked since I was 12 years old, find myself in some great difficulty because of a bad judgment I made. And I have lost my livelihood and uh, everything else along with my uh, Oh, my. my I'm bad sorry judgment. to hear that, Charles. But no, but I'll still be watching you, Tom. But but I see, uh, you know, way back when in high school, Tom, when we used to say the Pledge of Allegiance, my friend and I would say, uh, with liberty and justice for those with money and deep pockets. 
I don't think anything has changed, and I'm very saddened. Yeah. And those in leadership should be accountable more than any of us. And there's a real skewering of our cultural values going on, and I'm not quite sure what to do about it. I'm not sure what I can do about it, but I do appreciate that you bring these issues to the forefront for many people that don't know anything about the issues. Thank you, Charles. I think that what's incumbent on all of us is to is to stand up and speak out, to participate where we can to 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 make a change. I mean, we have to we have to save this world. I mean, it, there's just no other way to say it. Charles, thanks so much for the call. By the way, just FYI, uh, the first article of impeachment against Richard Nixon, first article of impeachment, reads that Richard Nixon was you know, deserves to be impeached for, quote, approving, condoning, acquiescing in, and counseling witnesses with respect to giving of false or misleading test statements to lawfully authorized investigative officers and employees of the United States. Exactly what Michael Cohen is now saying Donald Trump told him to do, lie to Congress. Darwin in Weatherford, Texas. Hey, Darwin, what's up? Uh, hello, Tom. Uh I ran for city council about two years ago, and I'm a Democrat here in Weatherford, Texas. Mm -hmm. And I want to tell you, our, our environment here has just gone to hell. Uh, the trash and accumulations of, uh, are, are in my part of town, and it's just terrible all up and down the streets and loose dogs. And I want to tell you something. I, I love animals. In fact, I have two dogs. But it's not... It's safe. It's not safe to even walk up or take a stroll on our city streets on this. Why is that, darling? Well, uh, the city council doesn't care. They're all Republicans, although it's supposed to be a nonpartisan council, right. and uh, they don't care. They're not. And our our utilities are high as they can be, and also our taxes. I can hardly make it each month. And anyway, I just wanted to tell you. The Commission on Environmental Quality of Texas, it's like they're non-existent. You never hear from them. Yeah. And I'm wondering if uh, the, the Democrats, if, if later, if Trump is out of there, will we be able to get EPA enforcement in Texas? Not while Mike Pence is president. And, uh, you know, and this is the, the all the more the tragedy. This is, this is the capture of the Republican Party by the, the fossil fuel billionaires. And, you know, right now, Literally, as we speak, a lot of government employees are laid off, but on the Interior Department, they're processing applications for oil companies and, and coal mining companies to, to buy federal lands for pennies on the dollar and then go in and ruin our national parks. I mean, that's literally going on as we speak. Darwin, I wish I could offer you more hope, but I think until this Republican Party completely crashes and burns or laws are changed so the billionaires can't own Republicans anymore, it's going to continue going the way it is, which is terrible to say. But, uh, you know, but good on you for running for city council and good on you for, for you know, being an activist. You need to be talking to the other Democrats in town and getting something going here. J.R. in Sholo, Arizona. Hey, J.R., what's on your mind today? Oh, my goodness. You're taking the words right out of my mouth, Tom. Discussing facts with Republican Trump supporters is like kicking water uphill. Yeah. It, it just doesn't work. It, it's yeah. such a futile practice. I've never heard that phrase. It's a great one, JR. There's so much I want to say, you know. Well, pick one thing. I was always an independent voter. Mm -hmm. I always took my voting privilege and, and things like that very seriously. And this year, I'm proud to say I'm a Democrat. There is no way in heck... I'm not going to let the Republicans know how I feel. Yeah, they have sold out to uh, overseas oligarchs and domestic oligarchs. The Republican Party they, they is a wholly owned subsidiary of Coke Industries. It, it certainly looks like to me. 
They've sold out to the truth, and the truth does not tell lies. Yeah, amen. How do they have little, uh, like, do they have lessons for little Republican children, like how to perfect your lying, how to get what you want, how to throw the tantrum? I mean, what are we teaching our children? What kind of world is this? Yes, they are, and it's all on Fox News. Okay. I mean, it's just all on Fox News. The way Trump conducts himself, and they get behind him, it's like the Flat Earther Society saying we have members all around the globe. Right. Here's some of the uh, some of the headlines over at Media Matters for America, MediaMatters.org. Ingram says that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez used minority privilege to criticize Fox News. Yeah, I mean, uh, NRA TV host likens Colin Kaepernick to Satan. Uh, you know, Fox News spent months on end declaring there was no collusion between Trump's campaign and Russia. And Fox and Friends downplays bombshell report that Trump instructed his lawyer to lie to Congress. When you've got a billionaire oligarch running a television network exclusively for the benefit of other billionaire oligarchs, you have a genuine danger to democracy. JR, thanks for the call. Well said. Michael in Santa Rosa listening on uh, Real Talk 910. Hey, Michael, what's up? Yeah, how you doing, Tom? Thanks for taking my call. I'm on HUD, and I've been on HUD for 10 years, and HUD is experimenting with energy weapons. They use LRAD to chase people out of their apartments, and now this is the latest thing for houses since the fires here. But uh, I'm getting uh, facial deformities. The sides of my head are caving, and you start to look like an aluminum can. And everybody around me is ex-military. You're put in an embedded perimeter. And even when I had Comcast, I had a perimeter grid come up on my screen, and my neighbors all around me are getting robbed. Michael, Michael, I, you know, it sounds to me like you have some real challenges in your life, and I hope that you can find some, you know, appropriate and reasonable help for that, because, um, you know, that sounds somewhat delusional, frankly. Um, Please check in with your health professional. Tom Hartman here with you. Right now, Dr. Greg Jaxo is with us. He's the former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and he has a new book out. It's called Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator. His Twitter handle is Jaxo, J-A-C-Z-K-O. Dr. Jaxo, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom, for having me on. It's great to be with you. It's great having you with us. So you were the guy who was in charge of approving nuclear power plants and all this kind of stuff. You write in your book that I know nuclear power is a failed technology. Did you know that when you came into the job? Did you know that when you left the job? Do you now know that in retrospect? When did you come to that conclusion? I really came to that conclusion about partway through the time that I was chairman when I dealt with a very significant nuclear power plant accident in Japan, the Fukushima power plant accident that happened when there was a massive earthquake followed by a tsunami, and four reactors there had very, very significant releases of radiation. So it was really at that point that I realized that all the hypothetical discussions about accidents and possibly bad things that could go wrong were real. And it just, I just came to realize that 100,000 people being evacuated from their homes was not the right way or the right kind of thing that should happen when you generate electricity. So, you know, what's the state of the nuclear industry in the United States? You mentioned Fukushima. As I recall, those are called uh, General Electric II, Mark II boiling water reactors. And that there's some, what, 50 or thereabouts of those in the United States? 
Altogether, there are 30-some reactors that are similar to the ones in Japan. So it's a little bit smaller number. But the industry right now is they're in a bit of a contraction phase and what I call a kind of a nervous phase. And you're seeing that because there's a lot of effort right now going into talking about nuclear power as a climate change solution to kind of give it another reason to exist. And that's one of the things that really worries me because not only do you have the risks from an accident with nuclear power, but if we really are going to rely on this to solve climate change, we're simply not going to solve climate change. Yeah, I had Dr. Helen Caldicott on this program six, eight years ago, and she said that the first kilowatt of purely nuclear-generated power comes out of a nuclear power plant in like its 15th year of existence because of all the carbon that goes into mining uranium, transporting it, refining it, the making of the concrete, the making of the nuclear power plant itself, et cetera, et cetera, that it's really not a carbon-free technology. Never can be because of that mining. And obviously the whole nuclear waste situation. And yet we've got Arnold Schwarzenegger and others out there saying, in fact, a couple of climate scientists even saying nuclear power is the thing that's going to save us. It seems crazy to me. We've got nuclear fusion. We've got this massive fusion reactor just 93 million miles away from us that pours enough heat energy onto the earth every day to power all of civilization for years. Do we not? Yeah, it is amazing to me how this kind of myth has perpetuated that somehow nuclear will solve the problems. I look at it from a more practical perspective. When I was chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the industry was promoting what they call the renaissance of new reactors. And we licensed four new reactors when I was there as chairman. I actually opposed those because I didn't think they were doing enough to respond to the Japanese accident. But if you look today, two of those projects have been canceled before they even started. And the other two reactors are continuing to be built at a cost of about $27.5 billion just for two nuclear power plants. I mean, it's, it's amazing the numbers and how this kind of technology continues to go on. And then you, know, you look at something like the Japanese accident, which took out what was really the cornerstone of the Japanese climate strategy, which was to rely on a large number of nuclear power plants. And once that accident happened, they shut down all of their reactors and their carbon emissions actually went up for the next two or three years. And what's interesting is they finally turned the corner and are starting to bring those emissions back down again because they've turned to kind of the trusted and true solutions. They've turned to a lot of solar. They've turned to energy efficiency. And they're actually making a lot of progress. So the solutions that are out there right now that are getting really cheap and are really easy to deploy, it's solar, it's wind, it's geothermal, and battery storage and other kinds of storage are getting cheap enough now that you can think about projects that couple all those things together. Right. At a level of scale, not just you know, in a car or a house, but even a community, a neighborhood, a town. It's pretty remarkable. You wrote, the continued use of nuclear power will lead to catastrophe in this country or somewhere else in the world. This is a truth we must all confront. Where do you see the greatest risk? I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, we had major flooding in the upper Midwest. And as I recall, it was in Nebraska. There was a nuclear power plant. They're always situated on rivers or by the ocean because they need so much water to cool their systems. And this river, you know, was within a few feet of swamping the nuclear power plant, which might have created a Fukushima style situation. Is that what you have in mind, or is there some other scenario? I mean, you know, Three Mile Island didn't require that. It was, as I recall, operator error, wasn't it, or the failure of a pump someplace? What is the thing that you are most concerned about? It's hard to predict where the next accident is going to be and what's going to cause it. But what fundamentally we know is that all nuclear power plants 
they always operate really on this precipice between safe operation and catastrophic failure because they can't operate without a lot of systems that help keep them safe, basically. And those systems will invariably fail. It could be like at Three Mile Island where you had a piece of equipment that failed and then the operators misinterpreted the failure and took actions that actually made the accident worse. You, you could have a Chernobyl-style accident where the operators were really conducting an experiment with the reactor. They were trying a new way to operate it, and that led to a catastrophe. Or you could have some type of natural disaster like the Fukushima accident. And you mentioned that plant in Nebraska. I actually toured that plant, and I talk about this, of course, in the book. I toured that, and it was the summer when we were dealing with the accident in Japan. And, and you know, it really brought home that this was not a problem just for Japan. There I was. I went to visit the plant, and I was standing really in the middle of the Missouri River and this island that had become the nuclear reactor. And, you know, with additional floodwaters that at some point would have gotten to a level where there would have been very little you could do to control the reactor and prevent at least damage to the reactor, if not a significant release of radiation. Wow. So how do we get out of this? We're talking with Dr. Gregory Jaxo. He's the former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. What should we do and how quickly should we do it? You know, the good thing right now is that the alternative solutions are really the cheapest solutions. So the best thing we can do is to really just let the market decide. Let the market go on and figure out the cheapest way to generate carbon-free electricity. And if you do that, the answers are obvious. It's solar, it's wind, it's all of these technologies. So isn't the the first step there then to eliminate the, I think it's $300 billion a year that we're subsidizing the fossil fuel industry? Yeah, I mean, those are the first things you do is you have to get rid of subsidies, level the playing field, and the right technologies are going to win. And when it comes to nuclear, what you're seeing right now is a lot of nuclear power plants are basically holding their hand out and asking for subsidies because they can't survive without them. And right. they're, they're trying to disguise the whole thing as a climate solution, as a climate Well, it's been support. subsidized all and along with Price-Anderson. I mean, you know, the nuclear industry can't even get insurance. That's another piece that's always been there, that you cannot insure these reactors without a government backing. And there's a program, as you mentioned, called Price-Anderson, which provides really a huge subsidy because, you know, without Price-Anderson, probably there would be no nuclear power plants operating. So they've done, you know, they've served a purpose. They've kept a lot of carbon emissions. They've kept a lot of harmful air emissions, you know, out of the air, out of the atmosphere. But right now, there are alternatives, and those alternatives are in most cases cheaper or getting cheaper to the point where in a few years they'll be much cheaper. So all we have to do really is let the market work, let it do the right thing, and just get out of the way. Yeah, if we got out of the way of the subsidies. Dr. Greg Jaxo, the former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, his new book, Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator. Dr. Jaxo, thanks for dropping by. Thanks, enjoyed it. You've probably heard a lot of stories about drug cartels. They're all over the news. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. You heard right, Mennonites. Nearly 9% of them are kind, God-fearing people. But there's one group that has smuggled millions of dollars in narcotics from Mexico to Canada. This Wednesday at 10, 9 Central, WGN America premieres the new TV series, Pure, based on the true events of the Mennonite mob. The show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite 
pastor who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. But he finds himself way in over his head. And the good pastor, along with his wife, will do some very bad things, all in the name of protecting their family. Think of Pure as Breaking Bad meets Witness meets Narcos. Get hooked on Pure. The series premieres Wednesday at 10, 9 central, only on WGN America. Available on DirecTV, Channel 307, Dish Channel 239, or check your local cable listings for the channel in your area. Our book today is Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jaxo, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I'm going to start with the last paragraph of Chapter 1, and then I'll start reading Chapter 2. In hindsight, the Fukushima incident revealed what has long been the sad truth about nuclear safety. The nuclear power industry has developed too much control over the NRC and Congress. In the aftermath of the accident, I found myself moving from my role as a scientist impressed by nuclear power to a fierce nuclear safety advocate. I now believe that nuclear power is more hazardous than it's worth. Because the industry relies too much on controlling its own regulation, the continued use of nuclear power will lead to catastrophe in this country or somewhere else in the world. This is a truth we must all confront. Chapter 2. The Fukushima accident in Japan was not the first accident to belie the promise of nuclear power. In its early years, the commercial nuclear industry had only a limited understanding of the operations, science, and engineering of actual power plants. This ignorance led to the first major nuclear power plant accident just outside Harrisburg, the state capital of Pennsylvania, in 1979. Three Mile Island prompted a flurry of reforms and a pile of promises that the public would be protected from future nuclear calamities. Through the mid-1980s, it appeared these promises were being kept. Construction on new plants slowly resumed without major accidents. Then suddenly, strange radiation measurements were detected in Sweden. Governments in Europe and throughout the world soon learned that a disaster had occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Soviet Union. Like a developing photograph in a bath of chemicals, the reality of nuclear power was starting to come clear. One nuclear accident was an oversight, a mistake, an aberration. Two nuclear accidents hinted at a serious problem with the technology. A third would cement the conclusion that nuclear power plants were simply going to have accidents on a relatively consistent schedule. After Three Mile Island, after Chernobyl, the third accident nearly occurred in 2002 at the troubled Davis-Bessie nuclear power plant in Ohio. The problem is that with each new accident, all the people in charge of nuclear safety seemed to revert to the belief that this one would be the last one. As chairman of the NRC, I battled nearly every day against this instinct to believe that the worst was over. You can prepare for the next accident only if you get all the players to admit that a next one is coming, even if and when are impossible to predict. Before Fukushima, too many people I encountered simply did not believe the next one would ever come. Their view is not surprising. Accidents are rare in Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. It happened decades earlier. Yet I continue to believe I could challenge this complacency. I seized one opportunity just after I became chairman. Four days before President Obama tapped me to lead the commission, I spoke at a conference organized by the North American Young Generation in Nuclear, an industry group of professionals entering the field as nuclear operators, designers of reactors, or academic experts in nuclear technology. As I looked out at the crowd, it dawned on me that many of these people had never lived through a nuclear power accident. Even if I had been only nine years old when Three Mile Island occurred, when Chernobyl happened, I was a teenager more worried about surviving my freshman year of high school than about nuclear disaster. The people I was speaking to were even younger. 
I wondered how they had experienced these seminal events. Being a scientist, I decided to conduct an experiment. I asked everyone in the audience to stand if they were born after 1979, the year of Three Mile Island. Nearly everyone stood. After they sat down, I asked them to stand if they were born after 1986, the date of the Chernobyl accident. Once again, nearly everyone stood. These industry-defining accidents have become dry case studies taught in college classes. The next generation of American nuclear power professionals has never experienced the confusion of a nuclear accident as it is happening. And so it's essential that we remember and teach the lessons of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. For reviewing these accidents shows common themes of missed opportunity, human failings, and technological overconfidence. No amount of forgetting can change these simple facts. The March 1979 accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania seems almost like something out of a science fiction horror film. The cover of Time magazine captured the national mood of chaos, confusion, and fear. The emergency red phrase nuclear nightmare slashed across the dark black cooling towers of the plant. There was no live streamed video as there would be after the Fukushima accident, but the public could imagine the scene inside the reactor. Just 12 days before the accident, the China Syndrome, a feature film starring Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas as reporters who uncover a major incident in a nuclear plant, had been released. Perhaps the hundreds of journalists gathered outside Harrisburg believed they too would land such a story. It started on March 28th at around 4 a.m. when a water pump stopped working. The failed pump affected the steam generators, large cylinders filled with many tiny metal tubes that help turn hot water from the nuclear engine into steam so that the turbines can generate electricity. When the flow of water was cut off, this massive heat exchange stopped working, creating the conditions for a serious accident. The reactor engine was immediately turned off, but so long as the reactor fuel remained hot, which it would for quite some time, its natural radioactive decay would continue, producing enough heat, called decay heat, to melt through the metal containers enclosing the reactor fuel. The same problem would later affect Fukushima. And then he goes through the whole process there. Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jackso. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Bill in San Diego. Hey, Bill, it says you disagree with the former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission about nuclear power. Well, I don't disagree with him on what I call U-Power, which is uranium pressurized water reactors, but that's not the only game in town. We could be using thorium. Why should we be digging stuff out of the ground, using massive amounts of fossil fuel to do it, transporting it hundreds or even thousands of miles, spending another small fortune and an enormous amount of fossil fuels to refine it, when we could simply put solar panels on all our roofs? Well, I like solar, too, but one of the things I learned recently is you've got to watch the materials that are in them, and we'll have to dispose of them at some point. But getting back to this... Wait a minute. You're concerned about waste disposal around nuclear, uh, around solar power, but you're not concerned about waste disposal with well, nuclear power? Let's not get distracted on that. Thorium is six times more abundant than uranium. It is much more easy to refine. The technology you It's use nowhere near as abundant thorium. as iron. And, and there's a, you know, it takes an enormous amount of effort to, to, to dig and refine and transport iron. I mean, iron ore. It's, it, you're still talking about digging stuff out of the ground. Now, Bill, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into this argument again. I, you know, Charles in Staten Island listening to us on WBAI. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I appreciate your brain very much and your thoughts. We definitely need more people who are thinking on the point. 
The reason why I called is I'm writing a book presently, and I believe I believe it has the answer. Part of what I believe is the answer is that would abolish within respect to national security, because you have to understand part of our government, of course, we are number one in the world because of all the business we do. And I think a lot of Americans love that. Part of the answer would be very touchy unless it could be designed correctly, which Nikolai Tesla has actually come up with, and it's disappeared. But I've had experiences as one of my licenses out of 14 licenses and five EPA certifications would generate within our electromagnetic fields that are around our Earth energy that does not require any of those substances. Nuclear is not needed. We would not need carbon. You're right, but it does require um, motion. If you're going to extract electricity from an electromagnetic field, you have to have motion, and that motion requires energy to produce. That's why the whole, hey, let's uh, create unlimited power from the Earth's electromagnetic field has not been realized. I know Tesla dreamed of this and talked about this. I, I don't recall any actual plans that he had. Well, actually, I don't want to say it publicly, but he did produce things that would take small electrical receivers and those receivers literally would be receiving free energy that's literally around us as we speak right now. And how that would be able to be implemented. Well, I mean, you can do that with a crystal radio, and it doesn't require motion. But, you know, how do you scale that? I mean, you're taking microwatts, you know, millionths of a watt out of the electrical field, the RF field that we're surrounded by all the time. So that's certainly doable. But if you're going to extract enough power to, to power a home, I, I, you know, I don't see any way to do that. Um, well, this is, of course, to people who don't do PC board design and control and understand the implementations of designing receivers. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why I feel the Declaration of Independence would be the answer to all of our problems in basic because the five ingredients it stands for, safety, happiness, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and without removing any of those prescriptive ingredients to try to separate them, and exactly like the first paragraph says, it's time to stop the political bands which join us and turn to the powers of the earth. How ironically funny true that it is. Yeah, no, I get, I get um, all that, Charles. And, and I just don't understand why we're not, uh, you know, just using the power that's coming from that nuclear reactor 93 million miles away. Mike in Lomita, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I got ticked off by a caller earlier in the week who was complaining about the U.S. government possibly getting involved in health care because it's not one of the specifically enumerated uh, functions in Article 1. Well, I think if any originalist or strict constructionist is true to himself or herself, they should also be originalist about the medical care itself. Now, in 1788, we did not have cases of Ebola getting on jet planes and coming to the U.S. within hours. So I guess there wasn't any need for a U.S. Public Health Service or a Centers for Disease Control. Actually, in 17, well, it was 1789, maybe 1790, the year after the Republic was founded, George Washington authorized medical services in Washington, D.C. for veterans and for the poor. We had government-funded health care literally the first year or two of the Republic. But spurred by that comment, I looked up our founding father physician, Dr. Benjamin Rush. Yep. Surgeon Good friend General, of Jefferson. Surgeon General, the uh, Continental Army Medical Director of the Corps of Discovery of Lewis and Clark in 1803. Yep. And his uh, favorite treatment, if you showed up in his emergency room complaining of belly pain and vomiting and all that, he would probably have bled you. 
because mm-hmm. that was his preferred method of treatment for yellow fever victims, or he would have loaded you up with heavy metals like mercury. Right. In fact, he supplied these pills for the Lewis and Clark expedition, which were more than 50% mercury, and archaeologists today have been able to trace the precise route of Lewis and Clark by tracing the mercury from these from these laxative pills that he prescribed for the Oh, that's amazing. Traveling. You know, they, there's, there's a story behind that. Mercury was called quicksilver, and the doctors of the age used it because it stimulates the immune system. The body knows that it's being poisoned, and it just freaks out. It kicks into a high fever response, which is actually antibacterial. You know, it's, it's like it helps the body fight off bacterial infections. The problem is it poisons you with mercury. But they didn't know that at the time, and that's why they were called quick doctors or quicksilver doctors. And that phrase over the years evolved into quack doctors. That's where the phrase quack doctor came from. As modern drugs were being developed in the late 19th, early 20th century, penicillin and whatnot, and coming into the market in a big way and the medical profession was starting to license itself and things like that, they referred to the old mercury doctors, you know, like Ben Rush, as, as quack doctors. Or quick so, doctors. You know, something else they didn't have in Dr. Rush's age was the half a million dollar, and I've seen cases that probably were up into the one million dollar range of medical bills for people who have severe injuries and require a lot of yeah. treatment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well said, Mike. Thank you. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. On the line with us, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, joining us from the UN headquarters in New York, brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Ellen Ratner's new book, Loving What You Do. Luke Vargas is with us. You can hear Luke present one news story a day in just two minutes by searching Luke Vargas wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Luke, North Korea in the news? That's right. Their top nuclear negotiator is in Washington today. He's met with the Secretary of State. He's also met with the president. So this went right to the top. Uh, Kim Young-chol is a former spy chief of North Korea and also sort of uh, playing the role of interlocutor on the nuclear issue. I think one really interesting thing that uh, observers are watching here is that the U.S. special representative for North Korea, Steve Began welcomed the North Korean delegation to the United States personally, which is a real effort to insert him into the process and hope that the North Koreans take him seriously as an interlocutor. You can see why, after you know, watching President Trump for the last month uh, pivot policy on a dime because of one-off conversations we have with world leaders, that there's a desire on the part of the Secretary of State and others at the State Department and the intelligence community to put forward people who we are at least purporting to be credible 
intermediaries because there's a nervousness that if you just leave this to Trump and Kim, that you're not going to get any real serious commitments. The president's going to be won over too easily. Someone like Steve Began, if he can be taken seriously by the North Koreans, is going to probably negotiate a much stricter line. But here's, with the, here's the problem, Luke. Yeah. You've got you've got President Trump, Donald Trump, actually lying to the American people about what's going on and how things are working out. He's saying, oh, yeah, Kim has stopped developing nuclear weapons. That's a lie. Kim is not going to deploy nuclear weapons. It's a lie. I mean, you know, as long as as the president of the United States lies to his base, lies to the American people about what's going on, how can you have a foreign policy that's based in lies? No, I'm I'm not sure this strategy is going to work, but I think it's quite telling that there's such a concerted effort by others within the administration to try and get themselves taken seriously to try to get the U.S. government position uh, uh, imbued with some credibility in the eyes of North Koreans because they clearly don't think they have it right now. So that is something uh, to watch. I'll point out also, and this is, uh, again, kind of comes around to the same point we just made with that last bit, which is it's a good development, but does it matter? Uh, there were secret unannounced talks today, I guess they're not secret uh, anymore, uh, in Sweden between uh, North Korea's deputy foreign minister and other top U.S. officials. So things are happening. I think we are, we are, this is a sort of like the sort of push of meetings that we had on both in Asia and uh, in uh, New York City before the first Singapore summit last year. So I would guess that these rumors that Hanoi, Vietnam is being looked at for a site of a possible second summit, uh, that seems to be holding true. And the timeline now for this, I think, is moving up given the frequency, the sort of flurry of meetings we've been seeing. So, again, I'm not so certain that the U.S. is going to be able to really, uh, or our you know, top officials are going to be able to reassert U.S. credibility in these talks, but it looks like there's a push to, to have a second summit, and it's coming together quickly. Remarkable. And meanwhile, in Syria, Bashar al-Assad is apparently trying to rehabilitate his image. Is that domestically, well, internationally, or both? <laughs> Well, uh, well, I guess I've been watching international developments. There's been sort of a push from Assad himself. I think a lot of Syria's allies, though, are the ones sort of driving this. You have Lebanon hosting a meeting of the Arab League today. Lebanon's foreign minister coming out and appealing for Syria's membership in the Arab League to be reinstated after it was suspended in 2011 after the Arab Spring. I think what's pretty interesting, too, is you have sort of that dynamic. So, you know, I I think Lebanon, we can understand. You've got a huge Hezbollah influence there. They're tied to Iran, an ally of Assad. There's a vested reason why they are pushing for normalization of Syria's diplomatic standing. The other dynamic, though, is sort of a, hey, we don't want to be left out as other countries start to make ties with Syria. And that is driving countries in the Arab Gulf to want to reopen their embassies. There was a great report in Heretz uh, several days ago, which basically suggested uh, after the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain reopened their embassies in December last month, the Saudis and a number of other countries in the Gulf said, oh, um, if we wait too long to make up with Assad after having for years tried to you know, create a political situation in which he might be forced out of office, then the Turks and the Iranians are going to be the only ones with a diplomatic footing in Damascus. And that's going to permanently sort of leave us out of Syria's future. And so I guess it's not because Assad has done anything to regain legitimacy uh, in the eyes of the world. It's that uh, you don't want to miss out. Well, this is kind of a certification of the broad assumption that he's going to continue to hold power, uh, you know, based on A, his own strength within the country and B, his support by Russia and Iran, right? Yeah. And I think the final step you'll see are European countries 
start to do what the Gulf countries are talking about right now. There's been some talk. Italy might be the first country in Europe to really sort of reopen arms uh, uh, to the Syrians again. The Tunisians are doing the same thing. Obviously not uh, not Europe, but let's watch this. I think we, we are unfortunately seeing the rehabilitation of Syria if in sort of a roundabout way here. People realize this uh, Assad's going to be around and they'd rather work with him then not have any ability to even communicate. I assume this has nothing to do with the death of four American soldiers in Syria. No, it's or four Americans. Were, were in play before that. Yeah, I guess some of them were contractors. But okay, great. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. Thank you, Luke. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, uh, T-H-O-M, Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, you know, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch. And also, we regularly put up new rants. The one I just did is about the Supreme Court. How did we get here, right? I mean, how did we end up with, with a bunch of crazy right-wingers on the court? And what can we do about it? There actually are ways that we can address this problem of the corruption of the Supreme Court. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Dave in Armstrong Creek, Wisconsin. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Uh, thanks a lot for taking my call. I wanted to talk about the statement that was made by Ronald Reagan the government is the problem. Right. And now it has came to pass. In reality, it is kind of the problem because of the people that represent us in the government, especially on the Republican side. And a lot of it has to do with money, you know, and how they get elected through campaign contributions. And then when they do get in there, the influence of lobbyists is really a big factor, too. I'm really optimistic about the House of Representatives being taken over by a lot of people would not accept money from super PACs or wouldn't have super PACs or corporations, and that's a good thing. And I've seen this at play in Wisconsin for a long time, where the Democratic vote is a lot bigger than the Republican vote, yet we have this Republican legislature. This all starts at the state level, and we see it in federal elections, but the power of money represents the power of money, as simple as that. Mm. This is a problem that was created by the U.S. Supreme Court. When the U.S. Supreme Court, back in the 19th century, in 1886, decided to say corporations are people. And then in 1976, in the Buckley versus Vallejo decision, said that giving money to politicians is free speech and it's protected by the First Amendment. Those two decisions handed the control of our government over to a small group of very, very wealthy people, the, the roughly 150,000 families in the United States who are worth more than $100 million. And that is reversible. I mean, that's something that we have to reverse, but Dave, spot on. I really think that that is the biggest part of our problem. Dave, thanks for the call. Tim in uh, Beaverton, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind? Well, I, I listen to you quite often, Tom, and I, I appreciate what you're, what you're, you're trying to impart to a a society that doesn't seem to want to learn anything anymore, unfortunately, you know. We have all the information in the world at our fingertips, and people are more informed than they were 50 years ago, which is scary. Yeah. And, you know, a prime example of that is Luther, the guy you were talking to in Arkansas. That's scary stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. How many of those guys do you think exist? How many of them are listening to Fox News? I, I think the majority of people who watch Fox News believe that to be the case. I mean, you know, when you've yeah, got Tucker Carlson going off on white Obama. people are the real victims of racism in the United States, you know you've got a problem. And another simple comment about Obama, and not many people have brought this up, and let's forget while he was in president, what if 
a Access Hollywood tape would have come out about Obama a couple of weeks before the election in 2008, what do you think would have happened? His campaign would have been over. Yeah. As oh, yeah. As that. I mean, you know, look at how they went nuts when he wore a tan suit. Yeah, they would have probably thrown him in jail, basically, what would have happened. And then one interesting thing that I've studied over the last uh, year or so, Benghazi, uh, Roger Ailes, and Andrew Breitbart. Breitbart and Ailes. Ailes dropped dead in his house. He had a fall. Breitbart dropped dead on a street in L.A. with no medical history, and all that stuff was just covered over. I think they were liabilities to the GOP, and they probably got rid of them. I think, yeah, you know? I, think th I think they were both killed by their diets. I mean, both of them were obese. And, well, I guess uh, you know. the thing is, though, you know, uh, Breitbart was becoming, really becoming a lunatic on the airways. And then Ailes, you know, he was thrown out of Fox News. And you can you imagine the dossier he probably had? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of stuff that would be fun to think about if you were going to write a novel, Tim. <laughs> but, yeah. But I'm not sure how productive it is right now. I really believe that we're looking at the end of the Trump presidency. But how much damage is this wounded rat going to do or this cornered rat going to commit? as he goes down. I mean, here he is outing, you know, security, putting the lives of members of Congress at risk. Anyhow, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.